0: Hello, everybody, and live from quarantine, we have another episode of Bavarian Podcast Works, another interview with somebody who I greatly appreciate, but in perfect fairness, I did not expect that I would be interviewing you twice in one season, but for reasons that are obvious, uh, I think it makes perfect sense to bring Derek Ray back onto the the podcast, because in the always ever-changing world that uh, the coronavirus, that the novel coronavirus, that COVID-19, whatever you want to call it, has left us with, we are searching for a lot of things. We're searching for answers, we're searching for football, maybe, searching for things to replace all of that, searching for health and wellness. And I can't think of a better person to bring in on this than Derek because he's been following this story for a while, much like many other fantastic people that we will get into later. But first, Derek, I hope you're safe and I hope that you are okay how are you doing? Hi, Jake. Uh,
1: thanks for asking, first of all. I'm fine. I'm home here in Boston, just to the north of Boston, to be strictly accurate. And I have been for some time. And you're right, I have been following the story very closely. And there is, as you would probably expect, a, a German, actually a Bavarian connection to it all. because. Uh, on my last trip to Germany, or before my last trip to Germany, I read the German papers every day, not just the sports sections either. And this was a big story in Bavaria, in Steinberg, which I know well. I've got friends, actually, in Steinberg, and it's actually a community that is the home of quite a few Bayern München players. It's a very well-to-do community. And um, in this area, we had the very first COVID-19 cases in Germany, officially recorded. And it goes all the way back to around the 20th of January and a company called Vebasto, uh, a car parts manufacturer. And it was a Chinese um, employee of this company who'd traveled from China, her parents from Wuhan. She had come all the way to Bavaria to give a seminar and had, without knowing it, infected quite a lot of people. She didn't know at the time that she had COVID-19. And so it really began in Germany. So there's always a a German connection. And of course, I was going on the, the trip and was, to be honest, a little bit anxious during that whole trip and was extra careful with washing my hands and, and just taking extra precautions. And this was, as I say, for me all the way back in the beginning of February. I had two games at the Allianz Arena, and um I'd be lying if I said to you that I wasn't conscious of it, even though it did seem to me that the majority of the, the German population at that time hadn't really been thinking too much about it. But it was certainly there, it was in the German papers and it was a story.
0: So for everybody else, this is gonna be a little bit different than our normal interviews as the situation dictates. The first part of it will not necessarily be a direct question and answer sort of thing. The second half will, and that will make sense when we get to it. The second half will be talking about German soccer, the footballing world in Europe, and how it has changed dramatically. But at the beginning of this uh, interview, the part that we're going to get into now, we're going to talk about things that we have personally experienced throughout all of this things that we have seen others experience um sources and people that we think provide relatively quality information because we are both admittedly not doctors and we can't speak to uh things that we know about this virus because if you want to go learn more about that you can go on twitter and find many different phenomenal people um such as Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci for the United States, uh, Dr. Celine Gowder, the wife of uh, Grant Wall. She's an amazing epidemiologist in and of herself. And inherently, this is going to get slightly political. That's not necessarily always my intention. At the risk of alienating half of my audience, I'm very aware of what we might be getting into. Just to plainly state my own thing, I'm a moderate, so I don't particularly care one way or another. All I care is that people are done right by whoever is in charge. And there are people that have done a pretty good job of this, and there are people that have not. And we can talk a bit about that, but know that not necessarily we align ourselves with political parties, etc. It's just calling it the way that we see it, because there are governors, at least in America, that are on both sides of the aisle doing a very good job with this. So I guess if we want to run into landmines, let's go ahead and start with that, because I think that looking at all of this and through an American state perspective, um, there are a couple of people that have done a very, very good job of containing this, um, at least on the Democratic side, those are people such as Andrew Cuomo of New York. um, Ned Lamont, the governor of the state of Connecticut, has been doing pretty well at this. And then you look at Republicans such as Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, Governor Larry Hogan of Maryland, and your own Governor Charlie Baker up in Massachusetts. There have been other governors such as uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who has allowed um, people to continue to congregate, ignoring certain perspectives, and as a result, uh, things have been harmed, or people have been harmed, people have been put in danger. So, Derek, with all that you've been following in this In the United States and worldwide through world leaders, who do you think has done the best or the worst job of this? Well, again, if I go
1: to Germany, because obviously that's what we have in common, that's what we're normally talking about, that's what we would normally be talking about on this podcast. Um, I think in Germany, different states reacted at different times. And um, with regard to the Bundesliga, I thought that there were one or two states who were slightly in denial about it. Uh, And I'm going back to the week of the first week in March, really. And again, I was about to embark on another trip to Germany and had a bit of trepidation about that. Um, But it seemed that everybody in Germany wanted to sort of advise people to do the right thing without actually issuing an order to do the right thing. And then to compare and contrast that with the United States, um, there were similar aspects to that. But I think somebody, for example, like the governor of Washington, Jay Inslee, quite clearly got this early on. And why would he not, to be honest? I mean, Washington was the epicenter, the state of Washington, state of California as well, and they didn't hang around in the Bay Area. And again, you mentioned people like Dr. Celine Gounder, who you can see regularly on CNN. Uh, I've been uh, hanging on the every word of a fellow by the name of Dr. Joseph Fair on NBC, a virologist and epidemiologist who certainly knows his stuff. And if you'd listened to these people a few weeks ago, you would have got the picture pretty early on that, you know, these are scientists who know what they're talking about. If you want to listen to somebody about the Bundesliga and know what uh, is happening in the Bundesliga, that's one thing. But as you say, we are not scientists, but we can listen to scientists. And it was pretty clear that you have a choice When it comes to this, you can either tackle it or you can take the laissez-faire approach and pay the price a lot later. So um, what Governor Governor Inslee did, I think, was right. What Governor Newsom in California did was right. And it doesn't necessarily fall along party lines. Uh, You mentioned a few of the names who happen to be Republicans. Uh, Governor Hogan in Maryland, who clearly took this seriously uh, from a very early stage. And here in Massachusetts, we have a Republican governor in Charlie Baker. Now, I I might take issue with the fact that his um, directive has been a stay-at-home advisory rather than an order. It really amounts to the same thing in terms of what is being advised, but there are some who might prefer that to be a little bit stronger in terms of the wording and to be an order. Um, the, the governor who has impressed me most of all, without any shadow of a doubt, is Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. And I say that because um, I have got to the stage, and this has nothing to do with politics, nothing to do with my political beliefs. Um, you know, I'm not even good at. Say on here what my political beliefs are. All I'm saying is that I think Governor Cuomo has given people on a daily basis um, a little bit of peace of mind with his tone, with his delivery and with the facts that he always starts with. And I think people want facts, but at the same time, they want to be reassured. Um, um, when I talk to people in other countries, specifically Scotland and Germany, I always say that this is a decentralised country. Um, it, it is a federal system for a reason, and it has come down to the individual governors to make the right decisions. Um, I'd have to go along with what you said about Florida. I don't, for the life of me, understand why it's taken Florida so long, and Governor DeSantis there has to think about that for um, for a long time, I think, now. Um, but they at least, and let's you know say this is the right decision, they at least now have got with the programme and have issued a stay-at-home order because the evidence is quite clear. And, you know, we could get the UK angle on this as well. I don't think the UK has handled this particularly well. And, again, talking to a lot of people in the UK just a few weeks ago, they seem to be behind where everybody else was. And, um, you know, a lot of discussion in the UK about the strategy being different there. Uh, and I never really understood that but the strategy initially seemed to be get as many people sick with covid-19 as possible and now they have done a u-turn and and thankfully that is the case because uh, you know my parents who are elderly are are in Scotland which is part of the UK and my sister is as well uh, as well as numerous friends that's where i grew
0: up moving on more towards like the national stage as opposed to all of the governors um regardless of an individual's opinion on the current president of the United States. Uh, We don't have to get into that. We won't get into that. One of the clear people that has been incredibly on top of this is uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci and the people at the CDC. So um, they've been aware of the situation and the issue, of course, in such a massive maze that is the American federal political system. You can try to do so much that you can. Um, Interesting. Funny enough, at the moment that we are recording this, um, I just saw this thing come through on the Washington Post. Uh, Fauci's security has been stepped up as the doctor and the face of the U.S. coronavirus response has been receiving threats. From the general public about his coverage of this and his response and directives and advisories. And this is obviously not easy for people in the United States. A lot of people's jobs and livelihoods have been put at stake. Uh, people lose their jobs, people don't have an easy direct source of income. Derek, you can attest to that being a freelancer yourself. So. How do you... I know this is going to be an obvious answer, but I want to be able to have people hear it. How do you reconcile the fact that you should be staying home uh, with the fact that you won't be able to basically make a living for yourself?
1: Oh, to me, Jake, um, there is only one way to approach that question, and you stay home. I mean, that is the advice, the strong advice that we have had. I would actually go further than that because I've been following the story for a long time and because I'm friendly with a lot of people in the medical community. Um, I, I'm a big believer that sometimes you, you take your own advice or you take the advice, at least of people who know, and you don't necessarily have to wait for government advice. And I was hearing, especially from the UK, um, early part of March, a lot of people say, oh, no, just carry on, do what you want, you know, crack on, as the expression goes in the UK, you know, do whatever you want until such time as somebody tells you you can't. Well, I think sometimes you've got to be a bit smarter than that. And um, it was clear that that this was uh, going to be in our lives you know, to a greater or lesser extent. So um, my opinion on it is, yes, it's, it's annoying. Um, I'm a freelance broadcaster, as you said. I Uh, You know, I need to work uh, just as as every other freelance broadcaster does. But, you know, what's more important at this particular time? What's more important, health of society or our opportunity to make money. It's not even close. It, it doesn't even become a contest when you view it in those terms. There will be times when the economy can be repaired. There'll be times when, as freelancers, we can go back into the, the business of trying to uh, to make money in the traditional way. But right now, it's not just about my health or your health. It's about everyone's health. And this is the, the, the strange thing about this particular disease is that we do have a way of flattening the curve. And I've been trying to say this on Twitter in many different ways over the last few weeks. We all need to play our part in flattening that curve. And actually, when you think about it, the sacrifice that we're being asked to make, is not a particularly huge sacrifice in comparison with previous generations. When you think about the, the Second World War generation in this country, but I would actually say especially in the country I'm from, uh, and the sacrifices that were made there. Um, you know, we grew up hearing stories about that. Our generation hasn't really had to sacrifice on that scale at all. So, the sacrifice that we're being asked to make is stay home for a little while. You know, think about that just for a second or two. And yeah, it's, it's annoying, it's inconvenient, it's difficult. I, I totally understand that for all of us in, in different ways, and we react in different ways. But it's not the worst thing. That could happen to a generation. There are many worse things out there as possibilities. So I think we have to keep that that in mind. Uh, I think we have to, to follow, the, the as I say, the very clear directive now that not only must we stay home, but I think we also have to be good friends and neighbours to everyone else and implore them to do the same thing. Because I see it in my neighbourhood as probably you, know, you do in yours, looking out the windows, you see people who are not social distancing and the majority are, but it just takes a minority not to do it to to ruin the whole thing. We have never been more dependent on each other as we are right now and will be over the course of the next few weeks and months.
0: I think I had seen a tweet out there going back to an earlier point that you had made that said something to the effect of when the meteors were coming to kill off the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs' first reaction wasn't, oh no, the economy. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> sums it up, doesn't it, really? It does. And one of the things that I find funny is that there are two very opposite ideas of um, of taking social distancing seriously. There are the Idiots that will go out and go on their spring break in college. I'm a senior. I would have loved to have gone on spring break, but it just didn't make sense. Um, And on the opposite scale, you see things like people calling the police on their neighbors to make sure that they social distance. I heard a radical story in Maine of a man who uh, came home or came to his vacation house, really, in Maine from New York. If you're not from the Northeast, there have been a lot of travel bans taking place because a lot of people from New York City, which is a major epicenter for this, will be going to their vacation homes off in the woods and possibly bringing the virus with them. But these somebody in Maine cut down this massive tree in somebody's front yard and blocked their driveway and to make sure that they didn't go out and potentially spread, uh, the disease to anybody else. And I just find that fascinating that there are people that will take it so seriously, which is a good thing. I'm not saying it's not a good thing, but people will take it so seriously that they will basically go out of their way to shame other people for not doing it and i think it's justified well i
1: think that we are in the business of community at the moment and our community is really important and and we have to proceed on that basis um i think this is actually where local people come in uh, who, who often don't get the credit, but actually are, are doing a wonderful job all across the USA at the moment. And I'd like to pay tribute to my local mayor in, in the city where I live here in Massachusetts. He has been very active by um, calling everybody in this city, not every night, but I would say every couple of nights, a recorded call that he puts out. It's excellent, it's great guidance. I would actually say he's been ahead of the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts in terms of the advice he has put out there and um his most recent one actually he did one tonight just before i began talking to you jake but he did one a couple of nights before and the tone had had definitely become a little bit more serious you know and um you know he he said that we have now had almost or had at that point had 50 deaths in this particular city where i live and um essentially telling people that you know it, it really has to get even better the social distancing as as well as we think we might be doing we need to to be perfect with this really and um i still see it you know i go for short walks just along the the street where i live here and on one of my most recent ones i had to say to somebody could you maybe just move away you know move away a little bit maybe to the other side it's okay you know we're just trying to help each other here and and people receive it very well, but I think there are still people who don't necessarily immediately think that, okay, we're social distancing and actually we need to take every precaution we can. And that means that if you're walking in the middle of the street and you see somebody on the other side of the street, go as far over as you can to the the, um, the side of the street that you're on. That's just common sense. It's common courtesy. It is going to take people time, but I think We've had the time now. I don't think there are any excuses now. If somebody says they don't know, then I think it is incumbent upon us to, as good neighbors, to uh, to say, come on, we've all got to do this.
0: One of the things that I think hasn't nearly been talked about enough with all of this, because I agree that staying inside is very little to ask of people. But I think for many people, this idea of a lot of things happening all at once has an intense effect um specifically people with um that struggle with their own mental health i'll put myself out there as an example because i have depression as well as anxiety and i've found myself often having a really, really big struggle with all of this because, as I've mentioned before, I had, um, I'm a senior and I had my commencement taken away from me this May, and we're not sure exactly what's going to happen with that. I basically have been thrust into adulthood whether I like to or not, and just to have a lot of things taken away in such a quick time, to have the entire world screech to a halt there's so many different ways to see that and react to it and not everybody including myself has been able to do that really well sometimes and it's an it's a major hardship not nearly as hard as losing a family member to this but it's its own struggle in a way that could potentially be on a on a similar level so one of the things that i love that you do is that every single day you wake up and you check in on people, which is so incredibly important to those that don't have anybody to go to, whether you're elderly, whether you suffer from mental health problems, whether you are forced back into a home living inside with somebody in a situation that you don't feel comfortable with there are a lot of things out here that are going to affect a lot of people more than just the virus itself and so the fact that we all need to check in on each other is something that absolutely needs to happen and it's incredibly necessary for us all to do because we don't know how much longer we're gonna be inside but as long as we show people that we're all together in this and that nobody is alone through all of this I think that's I think that's going to help a lot of people and it could potentially save a lot of lives so I think what you've been doing just to reach out with people has been has been really good
1: well thank you Jake your words I think are very important and we keep coming back to community community is not just your local area. Community nowadays can be a world community. And it sort of hit me fairly early on. Um, again, to go back, I was supposed to travel with my wife to Spain uh, very early on in March. We decided late in February we were going to cancel that trip. And I actually put that out on Twitter. I said, we're going to cancel this just based on the conversations I've had with people who know. And I, I got a little bit of pushback from people saying, oh, come on, you know, you know be brave, do it. Nothing's going to happen to you. Um, I'm so relieved that we did that, by the way, because. Um, things really started to explode after that but um, yeah what you're saying is important because um, we have to be there for each other and it, it did occur to me early on in this process okay I'm I'm basically changing my Twitter feed now I'm still tweeting about football if there's a football matter to tweet about but to be honest I mean really football at the moment there's nothing that's particularly pressing in the football world I love it you love it We're all fans of the game, but there's something a bit bigger going on at the moment. So I thought I could probably do two things. One, I can put some facts out there to get the message across, hopefully, based on my conversations with people who are experts in this field. And then secondly, and and just as significantly, um, being a friend, you know, trying to be a friend to people who follow me. I mean, I'm sure that. You know, there are people who, who follow my feed for a variety of reasons, mostly to get football chat and and news and reflections on games, but we're in a d di- in a different phase now. So I thought, okay, um, you know, let let's change this a little bit. And and I've tried to do that every day, every couple of days, um, just say, you know, Here we are in Massachusetts. How's it going where you are? And I actually just tweeted before we started this broadcast, I tweeted that um, for me, Twitter actually has been a real blessing during this period so far, rather than the the curse that it sometimes can be in normal times. I, I don't really mean that, but you know, in normal times, you take the rough with the smooth on Twitter and there's a lot of abuse flying around. And sometimes you have to, to tune out from it. I've actually found myself not having to tune out of Twitter as much during this pandemic, because I think most people are looking for a little bit of empathy. They're looking for a bit of friendship. And um, if, if all of us can provide that in some way, then, you know, I, I think that's a big positive. I was actually going to say to the people who follow me, you know, look at all the comments of the people who have come back and just said hello, where they are, what they're doing. Uh, you know, interact with each other as well, because, you know, you probably all have a lot in common. If you follow me, the chances are that you're doing so because, uh, you know, you, you're probably football fans um, of, of some description, whether it's German football, English football, Scottish football, or just the, the beautiful game full stop. So interact, get involved. Um, And I'm always here to to chat. I'm not going anywhere else. So if anybody wants to have a a one-on-one chat and anybody wants to just run a few ideas by me, I I might do the same to to them as well. And um, it's about community.
0: I know I'm not nearly as as popular as Derek, but the same sentiment goes out from me as well. Um, Before we move on to the second part, I think it's important that you and I, as journalists, kind of point out who we think has been doing a pretty good job in terms of covering this. I think that a lot of papers, such as the Washington Post and probably even your local paper as well, because your local paper will be talking about things that national papers most likely will not talk about. Those are they're, Those are pretty good sources of information. Nationally, I think CBS... In America has been doing a very good job staying on top of this. Internationally, I feel that Al Jazeera has been doing very well as well. Um, and then following the doctors, following the CDC, following your governor... Um, of your state they're probably the best people with the most up-to-date information but you've obviously been following this longer who have you been listening to
1: well i've been listening a lot to people who have experience in public health uh, if you looked at my twitter feed now you would see a lot of people who are, i certainly was not following six or seven weeks ago but who are now must follows as far as i'm concerned because they have experience in the public health sphere. Uh, A lot of epidemiologists and virologists too, not just here in the USA, but in the UK, in Germany too, because I like to get the perspective there obviously things are being handled slightly differently in those two countries and i think too it's really been a time for medical correspondents to come to the fore and again you know medical correspondent uh, that position is probably not very glamorous uh, in in normal times but these are not normal times and i think we all as consumers of news we all rely very heavily on the expertise of of people Uh, who work full time uh, in this field. And you mentioned the local reporters too. I've also added a lot of local reporters who I previously didn't have on my, my follow list who now can can tell me what's happening at the sharp end in Massachusetts or in other states too. So I, I think it, it, it does change as this story moves on. Uh, I agree with what you say about uh, the main networks. I think you've done a very good job. Um, I tend to watch NBC a lot and their coverage, and I think they have uh, been very informative. Uh, Likewise, CNN, uh, who were on top of the story from the very start. And then the other, uh, for me, always underrated um, media outlet in this country is NPR. And, uh, you know, there are so many different ways you can listen to NPR nowadays, but I've always been a huge NPR fan. It might come from the fact or stem from the fact that I began my broadcasting career at the BBC and I've always thought NPR is is as close to the BBC as as we have here on the United States. So I think you can really... Um, you know, find many different sources and they are all out there. And, uh, you know, the medical correspondence in particular, though, and it's my one um, regret when it comes to the the White House task force uh, briefings, which I watch and I'm sure you watch. But I think it would be nice, and it's obviously is not going to happen this way. It would be nice if the questions were actually asked by medical correspondents yeah. of the the doctors of doctors Fauci and and Burks. Um, I think we would get to the nub of of what's actually happening much more effectively. But, you know, these are much more political events. I think if you contrast that with what happens in the state of New York and Governor Cuomo, who we mentioned earlier on, uh, he's dealing essentially with local reporters who he knows, you know, who are full time covering the state of New York. And so it's inherently less political than what we get watching the the White House task force briefings and the sort of the the back and forth, the volleying back and forth on a political level. But I mean, you know, let's not forget this is a medical story and um, I, I think it would be instructive to all of us if it were covered much more as such. I think in terms of the analysis it is, but when it comes to that briefing in particular, it, it does get very political.
0: Just before we transition to the break, one that I did not mention that I really think, has been doing a phenomenal job with this. Not many people outside of the journalism community will know um, the source that I'm talking about, ProPublica. They're an American investigative journalism company that solely runs on donations from individuals. They don't take corporate money and things like that, and therefore they are able to do A lot of in-depth investigative pieces. They've been doing some phenomenal work, a lot of stories, a lot of deep, interesting angles, and I highly recommend that you go and check them out as well. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we actually will be talking about uh, some soccer at some point, and this is that time, so don't go anywhere. So we're back and talking about uh, the potential German soccer angle to all of this, the German football angle. I'm sorry. Soccer is a force of habit for me. But um, when I first heard about the story of the DFL and the Bundesliga shutting down for a while, I personally was very saddened by it. I was selfishly holding on hope that Bayern versus Union was going to be played in an empty stadium because I knew that it was going to be the last time in a very long time that we would be ever able to see any kind of sporting event from taking place. Correctly, they did end up canceling it, but selfishly, and I think many Bayern fans may have felt a similar way that it, we did we really still don't know when football is going to start up again and it's a very weird world to consider that what i think might be even more concerning is that many many german clubs will be struggling immensely throughout this time in terms of finances. And I was thinking about it over dinner before I started this. In my mind, I think there are really only six clubs that aren't going to have to worry about this. It's the three clubs that have been started up by companies, so Leverkusen, Wolfsburg, and then Hoffenheim. In addition to them, Bayern, Dortmund, and maybe Borussia Mönchengladbach solely because of their history and their massive fan bases that they've created. Other clubs, right? Your cones, Union Berlin, maybe Freiburg, Paderborn, it's going to be really tough to see if they would be able to survive the remainder of the Bundesliga season being canceled. Is that something that you think might end up happening? And is that something that you're afraid of?
1: Funnily enough, I, I'm not afraid of it, even though the spectre of this is very much you know, haunting us all as Bundesliga fans at the moment. And, and we are having to sort of think the unthinkable um, stuff that we would not have imagined at all a few short weeks ago. But I am of a belief that the Bundesliga is better served than many other leagues in terms of its inherent solidarity. And we've seen so many examples of that in the past of clubs who have faced real financial difficulties being helped out by the other clubs. And, you know, there's been a lot of, lot of discussion in Germany about a solidarity fund, about, you know, teams fundamentally not forgetting about their, their brothers and sisters, if you like, their comrades in arms. I mean, their rivals on the pitch, but you know, when it comes to something like this, you know, it's not a matter of rivals. It's a matter of survival and, you know, doing that in, in the best way that's possible. Um, you know, I think we've we've seen the the right note struck by the Champions League representatives from this particular season in terms of creating a, a fund with a view to helping the other teams in the first and, and second division. My sense is that the, the first and second division teams will ultimately be okay now it's going to take a huge sacrifice there's no doubt about that uh, they're all going to have to sacrifice they're all going to have to totally rip up what the the business plans were they're going to be totally irrelevant now uh, in this new reality i'm a little bit more concerned about teams further down the leagues, you know, some of these great traditional teams that we have in the third division and in the Liga in different parts of Germany and heavens knows what is going to happen there. Um, Although sometimes when it comes to to lower level and when the budgets are not as huge, those clubs actually do have a a built-in mechanism for for staving off a rainy day. Um, I think it's a bit too early to to say for sure. Uh, What is clear is that the the DFL, the Bundesliga, desperately wants to get games played, even though they will be Geisterspiele, as we say, ghosts, games, games behind closed doors. The German word is much better, as we know. Um, Much more concise, Geisterspiel. Uh, So they would like to start doing this in May, but whether that's realistic, I mean, I really would have to have my own doubts. I obviously don't know that. Um, but they are planning for games to happen in May. At the moment, I think everything is just a placeholder. You know, leagues have to put events against dates and hope for the best but it will come down to the conditions in Germany at that time and then again we've got the the debate that we had before when we had games behind closed doors you know what does that do in terms of fans gathering how do you prevent that okay maybe people are a bit wiser now than they were a few weeks ago when that gladbach Köln game was going on behind closed doors um but yeah, I mean, it it is it is certainly part of the the narrative that uh, clubs could be financially imperiled. But um, I think the noises are right in terms of what most German clubs are doing and what players are doing. I mean, you know, Thomas Müller was out delivering food parcels to um, vulnerable people in his local area. You wouldn't expect anything else from Thomas Müller. Anybody who's been around him and um, you know most of the other players are the same way they are very community orientated in germany so um, it's one we have to watch but there's no doubt that uh, this is a big shock to german football i do think that going forward not just german football but all of football has to reconcile itself to the fact that the business plans that have come before will have to be torn up that you do have to Keep money aside for a rainy day. You can't just go spending, spending, spending and inflating the transfer fees and the wages. And to be honest with you, Jake, I'm not sure that fans. Really would be all that bothered if it weren 't like that you know i i 'm old enough to remember a time when transfer fees were not inflated, and we didn 't dislike the game at all we didn 't think, oh my goodness they 're not spending enough money oh the wages are are, uh, are i mean the wages back then i 'm talking about the 1970s and eighties were actually on the low side. The players in those days got a bit of a raw deal, and then it went way in the other direction, way out of kilter with the reality of society so um i 'm not saying it would be a a, a good thing, uh, but i 'm saying that there might well be a natural correction that uh, that affects all parts of the football industry on the back of this COVID-19 pandemic.
0: Well, I don't know how many fans of Manchester City or Paris Saint-Germain you've met in your life that would uh, be very happy if their transfer fees went down. But um, that kind of transitions relatively well into how other leagues ended up reacting, putting UEFA on a back burner because they did have to take a while to make their decision. Different leagues made different decisions at different times. Italy, of course with Serie A, had to react quicker than everybody else and earlier than everybody else because they got hit the hardest, the earliest. But then soon after them uh, came League 1, came the Bundesliga, and then last came the premier league um what did you see in each individual league's response that was relatively good or something that could be critiqued
1: i think actually italy should have done it earlier um, because they had the problem earlier and i'll never forget it'll actually stay with me for a long time damiano tomasi a player i covered many years ago when he played for Roma, now the head of the players' union, basically begging for football to be stopped. And, and he was absolutely right. I mean, football was still going on at a time when um, this had become a huge problem in Italy. But finally, they, they stopped it. I've got to criticise Germany a little bit here as well. I, I think that, and this was my sense this, this whole week, or that whole week rather, um, everybody was still debating ultras and, and, you know, the rights of ultras and what should they be doing and what should they not be doing. Well, that was going on. I was having a an email conversation with a, a good friend of mine who's a journalist covering German football. And um, I, I just took a chance and, and, and said to him, I said, are you going to the um, the Gladbach Dortmund game on, on Saturday? I said, because, you know, that was seven kilometers from Heinsberg, which was the, the, the first real hotspot in terms of COVID in Germany. And um, he he said to me, he said, he said, listen, I really don't want to go. He said, I'm, I'm a bit frightened by this and I don't quite know why they're letting this go ahead. But um, I think the football authorities had slightly taken their eyes off the COVID ball. I think everything was about the ultras that week. And um, to my mind, that gladbach Dortmund game should not have gone ahead. It was on a Saturday night, as you remember, and it shouldn't have happened. And then it started to become more of a story when Jens Spahn, the health minister, made it pretty clear that he thought football wasn't taking this seriously enough. And even, you know, at the start of that week, there were, there were all these debates. Oh, this game is going to be off, but this game is going to happen. And this game could happen behind closed doors on the union game against Bayern was going to happen, which again, I, I did not understand for the life of me. It seemed to come down to a little bit of a breakdown in communication between the particular health authority, uh, in, in, in Kopenick, um, but then it, it was cleared up and the game couldn't happen at all. But, um, it was it was a bit slow, you know. It, it finally they got there, but I think they should have been able to get there a little bit earlier. Um, but it just wasn't the big talking point. It, it it suddenly became the big talking point. Now the Premier League situation, I I really am still a bit dismayed as to what happened in the UK that week. And here's what happened in the UK that week: they allowed Liverpool against Atletico Madrid to go ahead in midweek, despite the fact that the cases in Madrid had already started to be counted uh, on a significant basis. That should not have happened. And Jurgen Klopp has since pretty much said that. Um, In my part of the world, on the Thursday, Rangers against Leverkusen, that game went ahead. I mean, it's bizarre to think about that now, but that game actually happened in front of a a packed Ibrox crowd. Um, Still shaking my head when I think about that. And the following day, plans were still in place for rangers against celtic the biggest derby in scotland one of the biggest derbies in the world that was going to go ahead on the sunday luckily they pulled the plug on that and all scottish football but it seemed following on from the premier league but the premier league was going to go ahead until hours before that saturday kickoff so um yeah the uk I think, let itself down that week. And, of course, we had the big Cheltenham horse racing festival, which is a huge affair. Again, 50,000 people milling around, mingling, partying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the UK was slow on the sporting front. We could go down the, the individual leagues. I was quite impressed with what happened in countries like Austria and Switzerland, where they pretty much straight away said, right, this is it. No football for several weeks. I think they got it. I think elsewhere... In the countries where there is more money, frankly, to be made from football, I think they were a bit slower on the uptake, and I think they were probably balancing in their minds, um, economy, football economy, versus you know how serious is this really. But um, I was listening to a fellow called Christian Drosten, who's uh, arguably the the foremost um, virologist in Germany. Uh, based at the the Charité in, in Berlin, and he was really almost pleading with uh, the German football authorities prior to that, you know, stop football. You, you can't
0: keep on doing this. COVID-19 is coming, and we need to be ready. So now I think it might be interesting to go into a couple of what-if scenarios. Um, for the basis of this, I want to use the what some may consider, um, optimistic idea that all of football could be restarted, um, whether or not it's a geisterspiel or not, on what in America would be Memorial Day weekend, the last week of May. Incredibly optimistic, but at the same time, two months from now, We have no clue what's going to happen two days from now, let alone two weeks from now, let alone two months from now. So, going off of that idea, right, I think there are three different questions to ask about uh, European football. One, the leagues where um, the title has pretty much been decided, leagues where titles are very much undecided and uh, the Champions League and the Europa League. So let's we'll start off with the first one, more notably England, right? Liverpool are 25 points ahead of Manchester City. It's highly unlikely that anyone is going to catch up with them, though with Manchester City's UEFA ban, it's going to be incredibly important to see who could finish either in the top four or possibly the top five um to get that 4th Champions League spot. Um do you think that uh that Liverpool should be just straight up awarded the title in a case that um they can't continue to play on and for those four spots that are so important to clubs like Tottenham and Arsenal, maybe, and Leicester City and Chelsea and maybe even Sheffield United, what do you think should be done with them, at least from a commentator's perspective?
1: I'll be honest with you on this one, Jay, I, I really don't have a good, strong opinion. Uh, I I thought about it, and part of it might be that my thoughts have been with this current pandemic situation. Uh, in comparison, uh, a football league title just doesn't seem to be that important. But I recognise for a lot of people, it is important for a lot of fans. Um, It's one of these things where you would like to think people could actually look beyond their own individual interest and just do the right thing. I mean, clearly, in the case of England, Liverpool, you know, if the season finishes at all, Liverpool are going to be champions. Liverpool deserve to be champions. We've seen enough of the Premier League season to know that Liverpool are by far the best team in England this season. and and should win the title but of course it doesn't work that way and you have to play the 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 full season in order to get the title what i do think it's moving more and more towards is and certainly we're hearing this from from a number of european leagues uh, that when the opportunity presents itself to play football again whenever that is then the best policy might well be just say let's finish let's try to finish this season on whatever time scale and then let's worry about next season when it comes, because as we know, because we both listen to epidemiologists and virologists and, and people in, in health, um, you know, COVID nineteen is is likely going to be with us for some time. You know, not just for a couple of months or even a few months, but you know, well into next year too. So there are no guarantees about next season. It's not as simple as saying, yeah, we can, you know, we'll we'll get this out of the way, we'll void the season, and then we'll just start a new season. We might not be in a position to to do that. And I know, again, going back to to virologists in Germany, many of them have said they doubt that or they don't think there should be football played in Germany again in this calendar year. Now, who knows if that prediction is is correct or not? We certainly don't know at the moment. But I think there is a move towards saying, OK, on whatever time scale, if it's possible, let's try to finish the seasons, even if it takes us into next autumn. Uh, And then... If we have to have a curtailed campaign next time round, we'll do that. Um, if we have to you know, do something different next season, uh, we'll do that. Um, I don't think there are any clear answers, and I'm actually not sure that there necessarily should be clear answers, because the one thing we don't have with, with any of this, with with any aspects of our lives at the moment, is clarity.
0: I guess that answer in and of itself kind of tackles the Champions League and the Europa League, because... It is a business, I guess, but the business is kind of a backseat to the sport itself, which is a backseat to people's lives. But you firsthand have been to a lot of towns in Germany, and you can attest to the fact that a lot of people's livelihoods and a lot of cities' livelihoods and towns are incredibly dependent on the success of their local football teams. So... Let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at the Bundesliga. In a season where a lot of teams are very close, where parity could be arguably at its highest, right? Bayern winning the title has not been a sure thing at all this year. So to award them the title, some may say, is a little bit too preemptive. But I think the arguably more important question then awarding the title to somebody at the top is what to do with the teams in the bottom three and bottom four, because they have shuffled back and forth immensely between uh, Paderborn and Werder Bremen and Kern and all these other teams that have been really struggling so far, and to have them go down in a year that has been cut short. I think a lot of people would find that incredibly unfair. Removing the human element and the obvious thing that taking care of yourselves and taking care of human lives comes first for the sporting aspect of it, I think it would be a crime to let any of the teams go down, and I think this is a debate, at least in German football, whether or not to send those teams down to end the season like it is, whether or not to bring teams up from the uh, the Zweitliga and bring them in and make it twenty two teams, whether or not to um, bring teams up from the Dreiliga into the Zweitliga. So it's a mess. What do you think would be the most fair way? to go about it?
1: Well, again, the fairest way would be for them to finish the season, but if that's just not possible, then I think they do have to look at um, stocking up, if you like, and and, uh, and making it a, a 20-team league or a 22-team league. Uh, again, if it were a 20-team league, if the top two and the, the zweite Liga were to be promoted, that would be Bielefeld and Stuttgart, and uh, a club like Hamburg were to miss out, then probably going to be focusing on that for quite some time so you can see why there's a move to make it 22 to sort of keep everybody happy at a time when uh well oh, goodness knows nobody is happy obviously with what's happening in the world but to try to at least not inflame tensions and then something similar for the uh, from the third division into the, the second division but it would mean more games um but as i said that might not you know be a, a huge negative when you consider that uh, you know, there are, there are going to be doubts about next season as well. I, I don't think anybody who has studied what is happening could reasonably think that we're going to be back to, to normal again um, in terms of football being played and football being watched. I mean, um, you know, this is going slightly off topic on, on this one, but I've been sort of wondering, you know, what is it going to be like being in a, a crowded stadium again? You know, are are we going to just suddenly get back to to a, a, a full stadium, in, whether it's in Munich, whether it's in Dortmund or, or anywhere else. And I think there's going to be trepidation about that. You know, I, I have to say that's something that I wouldn't necessarily feel great about in the short term. I can tell you I wouldn't. Uh, and, and I think anybody who's, again, been following the story would feel the same way. So at what point will we get back to, to that situation? Will it actually change football forever? Might we all become a bit more... Um, virus conscious if you like might we all say no what went before is not is not acceptable anymore you know we can't take chances like that I mean we, we just don't know we have a lot of un- unanswered questions at the moment and I think it just has to settle down and uh, we have to see where we are in what I think will be a few months time because um, I know the plan is for games to go ahead beginning first week in May but um, I'm having a, a devil of a time in my mind visualizing
0: that Yeah, that makes two of us. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we look at positive news, and we talk about better things than what we just have been. We're back with positivity, because positivity is the one thing, I think, that will get us all through all of this. So we both have different ideas about all of the questions coming up, that's the way that I intended to to have a bit of a call and response. But what do you think has been the most positive story about all of this coming out of German football specifically?
1: Oh, where do we begin? I think we have seen many uh, acts of kindness and um, sentiments that are absolutely 100% spot on and you know you think of two Bayern players in particular Leon Goretzka and Joshua Kimmich you know who have made it very clear that they sort of want to make it their mission to to help here you know to, to not be pampered footballers uh, along the lines of the, the cliche that we all have when it comes to footballers but really most of them are not like that and you know i think there has been uh, a strong element of um, of social work done by uh, players of German football clubs. And I think also just the, the statements of solidarity with the people who work at those clubs. And I thought Borussia Mönchengladbach in particular got that right at a very early stage when the players all you know, unanimously agreed that they would take significant pay cuts. And the reason for doing that was to look after the other people, the hundreds of people who work at that football club. And every big football club in Germany, as is the case around the world, has hundreds of people, you know, who are the bus drivers and the people who clean the dressing rooms and the people who work in the offices and the people who work in IT. All these people, uh, these unheralded people, um, uh, but we know that they're very important. So that's certainly um, something that, that caught my eye pretty early on.
0: Going back to one of the points that you had just made, the uh, week kick Corona movement or charity, whatever you want to call it, that was started by, as you mentioned, Goretzka and Kimmich, was something that I thought was fascinating. Not necessarily that, that they felt so compelled to do this, but that a lot of people in the German football community felt the exact same way and then signed on to go and help them, whether that was fellow teammates, uh, such as Thomas Müller and Manuel Neuer, uh, whether that was in-division rivals such as um, Timo Werner, um, former German greats like Benedikt Hovedes, and even their former coach, Nico Kovac, was, con- uh, was kind enough to donate and jump in on this, but the thing that I love the most about it is not necessarily that they're donating to medical research, which is incredibly important. Donations to medical research are amazing. But they focused a lot on the human element. They deliver food. They check in on people. They make sure that people are okay. That, to me, is... One of the things that makes me happy the most about supporting the club that I support and that these two players are a part of this club, it's the kind of thing that would make anyone proud. And everyone across the league, uh, Lewandowski, uh, Marco Royce, they've just been doing phenomenally because everyone is aware that this is just so much bigger than football itself. So next question. This one was actually proposed to me... Uh, by my therapist the other day, who's also a major football fan. If you were to want three games rebroadcast out to the world, um, which three would you want to see again? Do you mean games from this season or just games... This season... Let's start with let's start with this season and then go to any time in history.
1: Games from this season. Are we talking just Bundesliga or are we talking worldwide? We can do any. Games from from this season. Well, I'll probably stick with the Bundesliga because it, it tends to be what I watch on a week-in, week-out basis. One that would definitely have to be there would be the, the absolute classic recently between uh, Bayern Leverkusen and Borussia Dortmund that I actually didn't get to see live because I was on a train um, going to Munich to do the uh, uh, the Bayern-Leipzig game the the next day. So, I mean, that one would, would absolutely have to be there. Um, I think you would also have to put in um, the union game against borussia dortmund that i thought was uh, was terrific because that really was the first time that not the first time but one of the initial occasions that saw union put on the map they made their way up to the Bundesliga, but we saw that they could absolutely mix it with the best of them playing you know, in a style that is very much their own, that uh, uh, is, is, just, uh, is just union. And um, it, it's synonymous with the community there in Koepenik and one of my favourite places to go. And I'll, I'll indulge myself a little bit with the other one, but um, uh, Kern, my team in the Bundesliga, who started off pretty badly this season, suddenly turned things around. And um, the one that really sort of sums it up for me was the game just before uh, Christmas, away to Eintracht Frankfurt, which was a a thrilling comeback. And nobody saw that one coming at all, not long after Markus Gisdor had taken over the reins. So I'll give you those three. I could probably think of about 10 more, but they're the three that immediately come to mind.
0: I'm going to stick Homer for at least two of them. Uh, The first one that I would do would be the first Der Klassiker this season, because I think there were so many questions going into that game about whether or not Bayern would do well with uh, Hansi Flick in as manager, and then to go out and batter Dortmund 4-0 was just absolutely... It brought tears to the eyes (laughs) of Bayern Munich fans, if you will. I would also toss in that Bayer Leverkusen-Borussia Dortmund game, because it was just so... uh, It was just so fantastic. It was so phenomenal. But I I might be cheating here a little bit because it's not the same season. It's the same year, though. Uh, I would absolutely want to see the uh, Champions League semifinal second leg of Liverpool versus Barcelona at Anfield. Just to see, because... Enfield, in and of itself, is just such a special place in terms of the fans and that atmosphere that I imagine that for even a neutral to watch that game, it would be unreal. Though I'll also I'll I'll toss in one specifically from this season, if that one won't count. Uh, the first leg of the round of sixteen, Manchester City at Real Madrid at the Bernabéu was just fantastic. So all time. All time now. How about that? All time. All time. Well, that, that,
1: that, well, I'll give you all time. I'll, I'll, how about I do this, Jake? I'll, I'll restrict it to games that I have broadcast. All right. Games all time. So um, let's go in reverse order, shall we? And in third place, I'm going to go with a game I did in Scotland um, in 2014. No, 2014. 2015, 2015, I think it was. Either 2014 or 2015. And this was uh, Rangers up against Motherwell. Rangers who had been down the divisions, as you might remember, all the way down to the fourth division. Um, and this was their game against Motherwell, their playoff. So the equivalent of the, the, the relegation playoff as we have it in Germany. And um, certainly a lot of people thought Rangers are going to come back into the, the top division, but they lost the, the home leg 3-1 and then in the return leg, there um, was a very sort of jittery atmosphere at first Park that day because I think Motherwell fans weren't quite sure if they were going to get over the line, but they did. And it just was an amazing story. And um, sometimes it comes down to the commentary that we do on that particular day. And I just felt the words matched the... The occasion in front of me. So, um, so Motherwell Rangers in third place. Second place um, in terms of games I've commentated on, and we're only going back now to November twenty seventeen, and it was the Revia Derby at the Zignali Duna Park between Borussia Dortmund and Schalke. Which, as you'll remember, was 4 0 to Dortmund at half time. I was broadcasting with Stefan Freund, oh, yeah. who played for both clubs. And at half time, you know, he was saying, Oh my goodness, uh, he said, Schalke are going to lose six or seven nil here. Um, Schalke came back to draw 4 4. And uh, uh, it, I'll, I'll still never forget the moment Naldo um, nodded the ball into the net. And my goodness, just all hell broke loose that day, right at the end of the game. And um, that's certainly the most dramatic league game I've ever broadcast but there's one that can top it and of course um, those of you who who are old enough to remember it uh, will go back with me to 2005 in Istanbul the Champions League final between Milan and Liverpool at that time Milan were the class of European football they were the team everybody aspired to be Liverpool in those days were a bit of a ragtag and bobtail Liverpool under Rafa Benitez they had no real business beating that Milan team if you judged the team's player a player They were 3-0 down uh, in Istanbul after 40 and a bit minutes and somehow came back to level it at 3-3 and then won on penalties. And I broadcast that game for ESPN and it was um, just an incredible experience, one that will stay with me forever. We uh, got out of the stadium, it was after midnight, I think. By the time we got back into the centre of Istanbul, it was about two in the morning and we didn't go to bed. We just stayed up eating kebabs, imbibing what had just um, happened in front of us and and then went to the airport at seven thirty and got a flight home uh, and it was a whirlwind that whole experience we've been in istanbul for about five days making programs with the blue mosque as our dramatic background and it was just everything that a, a football trip should be and um no matter how long I, I continue broadcasting football, hopefully it's a good few years yet, I'll be very surprised if I get a game that can top that one because it truly was the most dramatic, the most compelling Champions League final of all time.
0: I'm going to stick Homer again just because those are the only ones that I I can clearly and obviously um, commit to memory. Um, I guess reverse order as well. Uh, three would be... Oh, number three would be Bayern versus Wolfsburg from a couple years ago when Phil Bonnie called uh, Lewandowski scoring uh, five in nine. That was just phenomenal. Uh, oh, he, he absolutely did. He did phenomenally in that game. Number two, I would have to say the... Uh, 2013 Champions League final, and a lot of people are going to say, why did you put that at number two? Uh, but I'll get to the number one in a bit. Uh, I, I really don't feel like I need to explain why I would put that game up there. Uh, it was just so much fun. It was so much fun to watch that. But I mean, my number one would be uh, the World Cup semi-final from 2014, 7-1. You have to, you have to, Appreciate that. Love that. Watching uh, Klose break the uh, record of Pele to watch everybody in that state. Like to watch heartbreak is a sad thing, but Schadenfreude incarnate was the cutaway shots to the uh, to the crowd of utter despair. Just. The effortlessness and being able to score those goals was just something I won't ever forget. I remember walking away from the television when Germany was up 1-0 and doing something and coming back and seeing 5-0 and just being utterly shocked. That was just one of the most surreal things I'd seen. Can I tell you my story about that game, Jake? Um, I was in Brazil. I was not at that
1: game. That game, if I recall, was in Sao Paulo. I was in Rio, and I was getting ready for the final. I was I I'd finished my commentary duties, but I was still working for ESPN and a few other things. And um, I went out earlier along Copacabana Beach. Everybody was in a wonderful mood, you know, just you know, expecting that this is going to be Brazil's night. And um, so I went back to my hotel room to watch the game because I like to watch the game on my own, usually in a in a more quiet environment, so I can study the game. And then afterwards, I thought, okay, I'll go out and get something to eat and um, went downstairs and all of a sudden the rain came on. It suddenly got very gray and all the restaurants were empty. And and the few Brazilians who were in there looked as though there had been a, a, a death in the family. It, it was just the, the biggest change in an atmosphere I can ever remember at any World Cup I've been lucky enough to cover. And that will stay with me for a long time as well, because they all really thought that Brazil were going to to win that semi-final and I think it was such a poof, such a a gut punch uh, that they were all having such a hard time taking it in and actually the restaurant I was in and this is Copacabana Beach where everywhere is open until you know one two three four in the morning that, that the restaurant was about to close because um it was just an atmosphere of such melancholy
0: I'm sorry I said that I was going to uh, make this more positive for the uh, Brazilian fans out there. <laughs> uh, for Fina or Phil Coutinho are listening to this, I apologize in advance. But, um... Uh what, is, what are things that you are doing during uh, your quarantine that you are finding the most joy in?
1: Well, I, I do find that having a routine is good. Now, I, I'm a bit lucky because my routine anyway when I'm home is to watch a lot of news, and I, I tend to be glued to a lot of different news channels. So that hasn't changed. And actually, um, I know for some people, it's very hard to watch the news at the moment. I'm a little bit different. I, I tend to find that the more information I have, uh, the more knowledgeable I am about something, hopefully, uh, the more power it gives me. So, so that's how I approach it. Um, I try to take a break from that, of course, too. As I said, try to go for a, a short walk just along my street here. We live in a very quiet coastal community. So um, so having a, a a quiet walk is... Relatively straightforward. Um, I try to catch up with other reading when I can, and a lot of that is still uh, reading German uh, sources. My um, kicker magazine twice a week, even though there's not a lot of football news in it at present. And uh, as I said, other things, uh, books. Um, Face timing is important, and I have two parents uh, in Scotland who I, I FaceTime every day. And you know, previously I wasn't doing it every day, but now I, I think it's very important to do that on a daily basis because they can't get out. Uh, and they can't see their friends, so so that side of it is important. And actually, I find between all those different things that the the day is is put in that, that it sort of takes care of the day. And I suppose there's a danger that that, that every day seems to to be like the last. But um, but I think you just get on with that, and I think we all just have to accept that this is going to be our our new normal for a while.
0: One of the things that I've been doing, and those that follow it know this, I've been playing a lot of FIFA. I've been Doing a live stream almost every day of what a simulated Bundesliga season would look like for Bayern Munich, and as much fun as it is, uh, I, I find it that it's relatively a good um, a good replacement for the real thing in the way that we live now. Um, I'm trying to read. I um, I haven't been able to do much of that yet, but the weirdest thing is online classes, like, I can't focus, like, it's so hard to find either a consistent focus or motivation to not be, like, in a classroom environment, it's incredibly weird, and I know I'm not the only one, and I know that the teachers out there um, are finding it also particularly hard, so if you're in the middle of this, uh, give a thought to them, if you're a teacher, you're A warrior, so well done to you. Um, Final question. What is the one thing you are looking forward to the most when we all get out of this?
1: The one thing I'm looking forward to the most? That's a really, really good question. I think it probably is the interacting with people and and being able to have the interactions that that we tend to think of when it comes to our friends and our family. And uh, again, it might be a while before we can go back to doing that kind of thing. But I think it's being able to just share time, spend time with somebody and and share that time and uh, be in the same room and do that. I think it's it's the simple things really. Uh, It's nothing too complicated. I mean, you might think I would say, well, you know, being back to Germany and covering the Bundesliga. Funnily enough, it's not that because I think there'll be a time and a place for that again. But we're not at that time. We're not even remotely close to that time. So it's more the simple things like that. The simple things like uh, you know, you and I, for example, we met in a in a coffee shop in my home city or the city where I live a couple of months ago. It's things like that. It's just meetings like that uh and listening and um you know hearing somebody else's perspective on on a particular subject and then giving your perspective and just sharing that time that would be my answer jake
0: i think that's a great answer i think that's something that we can all look forward to and one thing that we can absolutely cling for uh for the future whenever uh whenever that inevitable day arrives so that's going to wrap up this interview derek thank you very much for uh agreeing to do this yet again um be sure to follow us on twitter at bavarian fb works follow me on twitter at jefferson fenner follow derek on twitter at raycom with two m's stay inside stay safe social distance and we will see you later auf Wiedersehen Cheers.